0: Welcome to the Jewish Podcast, a space for all things Jewish magic, mysticism, and practice. My name is Tso, and I am the creator of Jewish, a shop, a website, and an online community. Every week, I'm here to talk about my favorite parts of Judaism, especially the magical bits. From discussions of folklore and mythology to deep dives into the practices of our ancestors, I am here to talk about it all. Hello, and welcome to the Jewish Podcast. Buckle in, grab a beverage put your hands on the steering wheel if you're driving because this is one of my favorite topics and I have been wanting to cover this for ages. This is one of the first blog posts I ever wrote for Jewitches, and it's been something I've been meaning to revisit for quite a while because as you know the Jewitches website has been up for over a year and I think it's time we revisit it. But this is going to be slightly different than my previous podcasts where each episode has correlated directly to one blog post this one is a combination of three blog posts. Can you even be a Jewish witch? What are witches and what is witchcraft? And why didn't you know about Jewish witchcraft? Before I start, there is a content warning. We're we'll going to be talking about things that mention violence and anti Semitism throughout the episode. Again, not in much detail because I don't want to have to say it and I don't want you to have to hear it. But when we talk about witchcraft, we inevitably do have to discuss some of the violence that comes along with it. Just a quick warning. Now, we're first going to discuss witchcraft and the definitions of what a witch is. I also think that we should take a moment to fully acknowledge the level of privilege we have to be discussing the word witch in the way we are. There are still many places around the world where the term witch is a death sentence. For us to be even having this conversation is an act of privilege and one that we cannot take lightly. I often find that we have such a flippant attitude towards it. And that is solely because we can afford to, we can afford to have these conversations in this way. I want us to keep that all in mind as we discuss this and as we have these conversations in general. And when we speak about terminology that is not standardized, perception of this change everywhere. It is not the same. And that's a huge part of why I'm discussing this at all. But I want to talk about that off the top because I think it's a really important note and reminder before we discuss it. Even within the witchcraft community, there is a ton of debate about what a witch is and what witchcraft is. Let's take a look at some of the opinions within the witchcraft community on what being a witch is and what witchcraft is. In Buckland's very misleading Complete Book of Witchcraft, which is actually only about Wicca, we see the Wiccan perspective on witchcraft. To quote, Witchcraft is first and foremost a religion. Worship of the Lord and Lady is therefore the prime concern of the witch. Magic is secondary to that worship. In itself, magic is a practice. If all you want to do is work magic, then you do not need to become a witch to do it. Anyone can do magic, or at least attempt it. Such person is a magician. As condescending and I don't know, hoity-toity, as that definition is, it gives us some insight into what traditional Wicca believes. But as Buckland admits, this is entirely belief uh, built on their belief that Wicca is the remains of the witch cult, which we covered in the last episode. But TLDR or TLDL, too long didn't listen. They believe in an entirely debunked theory. Uh, that there were people who practiced a pre-Christian religion that worshipped a god and goddess or lord and lady, and that Wicca is the w- remains of that. They are the next generation of this pre-Christian religion that, again, did not exist because it has been entirely debunked. Uh, for a longer, more complicated explanation, you can listen to my last episode. Let's move on to more opinions. Fiona Horn, author of Witch, A Magical Journey, states that being a witch is about having your eyes wide open and experiencing the whole onslaught of existence. Tanya A. Brown believes that, quote, in recent years, the word witch has taken on quite a powerful meaning. Not only is it to find someone who practices witchcraft, but it's also come to symbolize those in our culture who are willing to stand strong for their beliefs, especially when it comes to human rights. Juliette Diaz, an indigenous witch and author of witchery and plant witchery, writes that just saying you're one doesn't make you one. You need to do the work and to live and breathe magic every day. This importance on the practice is repeated through lots of different theories. And these are just a few definitions that you can find. I just picked a few off my shelf and, and used those. What I was saying is the definition that I use changes and shifts the more I study and the more I learn. I'm sure that in a while I'll look back at what I'm saying here and have an even more nuanced understanding of what I'm talking about today. So if a witch is someone who practices witchcraft, the next logical question is, well, what is witchcraft? Well, unlike what Wicca believes, it is in fact a craft and not a religion, but it gets pretty complicated after that. When we go to the dictionary the definition of witchcraft is very vague even wikipedia keeps it really unspecific so the dictionary definition of witchcraft is the practice of magical skills spells and abilities witchcraft is a broad term that varies culturally and societally and thus can be difficult to define with precision and that's a perfect definition it is all of those things the example i always use of witchcraft being subjective and a self-applied term in the modern culture Is that of two people lighting candles and invoking a deity for a specific reason one may be practicing witchcraft while the other might just be lighting a candle in a church but it's all about what is considered witchcraft by the person labeling it as such whether it's a self-applied label or someone applying it to another person in their practice the importance of self-applying also comes from the history of disparaging religions outside of christianity so even though witchcraft can be put onto a practice by another person, in my opinion, ideally it should be self-applied. We see this label slapped on a lot of other religions, particularly things like indigenous spirituality, voodoo, and African traditional religions. Things that are traditionally demonized by Christianity get the label of witch slapped on them. So back to witchcraft. It is essentially a very broad term to describe certain practices that may or may not fit beneath its labels, according to its practitioners. Witchcraft isn't just one single set of practices, and the line between witchcraft and religion are blurred, as they didn't always exist, as the term is extremely subjective. Like I said, it's complicated. So in all that complication, where... Oh, my kitty's making noises. I forgot she was in here. Everyone say hi to Eloise. So what are jew witches, right? The first time someone ever called me a Jewish, it was absolutely an insult. But then I forgot about it until a friend of mine called me in. And when I started talking about the kind of Jewish spirituality that I grew up with, I needed a name. So I called my blog Jewishes, because not only is it a fantastic pun, I liked it. Jewish, like all the terms we're talking about, is a self-applied one. Not everyone who uses the term uses it in the same way, or practices in the same way. There are basically two rules to calling yourself a Jewish that the community mostly agrees on. One, be Jewish. And two, practice some form of what can be categorized as witchcraft. And that's about it. But when people first meet me and meet me as a Jewish, their question is how a Jew can practice witchcraft while following halacha or Jewish law. And that's when it gets complicated. Rabbi Gershon Winkler states that Jewish magic was rooted in Jewish tradition, and Jewish sorcerers were humble, pious individuals who were well-versed in the tenets of Jewish faith and their proper observance. For the rest of the episode, unless I re-specify, when I talk about Jewish, Jewish magic, etc., I'm speaking specifically of the traditions stemming from within Judaism, from within our own culture and religious practices, because there are people who are Jewish, um, but also practice things like Wicca, for example. And they might also use the terminology Jewish, even though their practice does not stem from within Judaism. So what is Judaism's belief regarding witchcraft? Well, like literally every single thing in Judaism, it is complicated. And there are as many opinions as there are Jews, not to mention all the opinions of dead Jews that we still debate on a daily basis. So I want to be very clear, this is my experience, my perception and my opinion. You may disagree, chances are you might, and that's completely fine. That's totally okay. It's important that we remember that modern definitions are not the same as historical or previous definitions and include the fact that most Jewish discussions of witchcraft happened in Hebrew and biblical Hebrew, particularly those to be thought prohibiting witchcraft. Ma'achshavah is the term most commonly used, as far as I know, in modern Hebrew. It translates to witch. But what about biblical Hebrew? In the Septuagint, which I'm hoping I said that right, the translation of Hebraic traditions into Greek that was written by Jews, Jewish sages in the third century B.C.E., the word is translated to pharmakeia, which in turn translates to herbalist, drug maker, or witch. However, this translation was contested by Reginald Scott, who translated pharmakeia to mean poisoner in the 16th century. This translation denounces the use of herbs to cause harm, as opposed to one who uses magic in general. Here we see a specification of using the practices of witchcraft to cause harm specifically, which is a pretty common theme. Now, there are also Greek scholars who acknowledge that the word does mean witch, as in practitioner of magic. But the methodology and means would have been greatly different from modern practitioners. We all know the famous, you shall not tolerate a sorceress to live of Exodus 22, 17, sometimes translated to you shall not suffer a witch to live and so on. So what did the sages say? Let's look at some commentary. First from Rashi. This does not mean that you may kill her, but she shall be put to death by the court. Both men and women who practice witchcraft are included in this law, but it uses the feminine term, marchafa. Ibn Ezra says, Scripture mentions the law of the sorceress after the law dealing with the seduced virgin, because those who lust desire to satisfy their cravings through magic by bewitching in one way or another the objects of their desire. Scripture speaks of a sorceress because women practice sorcery more than men. Now, the Ramban says, but here, however, he did not say a sorceress shall be put to death. But in this case, he, and I believe they're talking about God, warned us in a stricter manner by means of a negative commandment, that we should not suffer her to live. The reason for this is that the sorceress is defiled of name and full of tumult, and fools are misled by her. Therefore, he was more stringent and admonished us with prohibitions. We find a similar severity in relation to all those who cause snares for many people, such as which he has said in the case of the misleader after idols. So here we see Ramban is saying the reason that witches are should be killed in their perception is because they mislead people. But I also want to make it really clear: there is only one recorded time where Jews ever killed witches, as far as I know, when I've searched far and wide, and y'all. It is a very self-congratulating story from the Talmud with no evidence it happened. So let's go a little bit further back. Uh, Simon ben Shetah from 106 to 76 BCE, that's how far back we're going, tells a wonderful story where he kills 70, w- I'm sorry, 80 witches in a cave. Let's, let's read it together. Uh, I'm reading this one off. So. The story in which Shimon ben Shetach hanged 80 women in Ashkelon appears in the Talmud Yerushalmi in Masechet Chagiga. As related there, when Shimon ben Shetach was appointed a nasi, he was told there were 80 witches in a cave in Ashkelon. In order to trick them, he came on a rainy day together with 80 young men who were each given a jar with a dry cloak in it. He told them that upon hearing his signal, they should put on the dry cloak and come in to lift the witches off the ground which would steal their powers from them. Shimon ben Shatach called for the witches to open the cave doors We could enter. Upon doing so, he impressed them, entering in a dry cloak, and told them that he came to learn and to teach. Each of the witches conjured up a part of a festive meal and then inquired as to what magic he could do. He offered to make eighty young men appear in dry cloaks, who would sweep them off their feet. Giving the signal, the men entered and captured the witches, who were taken off and hanged. The story concludes that the relatives of those witches, who were angered by this, came forward with false testimony, accusing Shimon ben Shetach's son of a capital crime. Upon being convicted and led to his death, the witnesses recanted. But the son insisted that the punishment be carried out, since he feared that people would suspect the sages showed favoritism to him by allowing the witnesses to change their minds, something that would weaken the efforts that his father had made in strengthening these laws. That is really something. I hope we all were listening closely because that is quite a story. The same article also concludes that this was clearly extradition, extrajudicial, whoa, extrajudicial. I can't say this word right now because the Beit Din, the court of rabbis, could not have tried each of these cases. So if this killing did happen, it happened outside of Jewish law And as incredible as this story is, I'm going to go ahead and say, I don't think it happened. I love the story. Great story. Don't think it happened. Also, in this case, uh, none of these witches were Jews. just want to be clear. So why do I mention this? Well, if you listen to the last episode, which I'm playing again because I think it's a great episode... There is a huge conflation of the crimes by Christians and the crimes by Jews against witches because Christians use scriptures that Jews also have as an excuse to hunt witches. For example, thou shalt not suffer a witch to live was used by Christians to kill witches. So yes, even with the most baseline, literal interpretation of the line, thou shalt not allow a witch to live, Jews didn't go around killing witches. There are fundamental differences in the ways Jews and Christians interpret scriptures. And even if the Torah specifically says you've got to kill them, that does not mean that ancient Jews or Jews throughout the century actually went around stoning people for being witches. Um, Like we read, they were very specific. you had to go through a court trial, which meant you needed witnesses and a whole thing. And even with the Torah, did not result in mass witch trials like they did in Europe and the Americas. Again, despite being from the same quote-unquote scriptures, they were using the same things and we see massively different results. And I bring this up because people, especially people who are not familiar with Judaism in the witchcraft and spiritual community, love to bring that up. So let's go back to the main point regarding this because I've got on a tangent. Um, Rabbi Gershon Winkler argues that it's the word suffers and thou shall not, tra- not suffer which to live that has been mistranslated when instead it should say sustain, not suffer. This conclusion led Rabbi Gershon Winkler to believe that the word was, the meaning was instead, don't get into the habit of supporting the livelihood of the will- village magician. Don't let some guy with a lot of supernatural power drain you of your savings through fear and intimidation. Let him get a job like everybody else and perform his magic out of the goodness of his heart and in the recognition of the sacred gift he possesses. Rabbi Gershon also discusses the possibility that it means from sorcery you shall not live, meaning that you should not make sorcery your main livelihood nor rely on it for every aspect of your daily life. Does this mean, does it count if I talk about it all the time? If this becomes my main source of income, does this mean I'm part of it? Anyway, that's something for me to think about. Right. Dave, uh, Rabbi David Hartley Mark mirrors this in his interpretation of the line, do not let a woman make her, her living by means of sorcery or witchcraft. In other words, teach or train her in another profession so she will be able to support herself and her family in a respectable and socially acceptable way. Now, while the subtle misogyny of this leaves a bitter taste in my mouth, it is understood that witchcraft, whether real or interpreted, was extremely dangerous to Jews throughout the years, so keeping Jewish people away from practicing was, a keeping, was keeping Jews alive and safe. And again, you can hear all about it in my last episode, which again, I'm plugging. So the conclusion drawn here for these two interpretations is do not let your entire life be about witchcraft, whether it be by supporting a witch monetarily as their main source or using it as your only source of income. Do not let the craft consume you. This would probably be an, only an issue for people whose entire life, 24-7, 7 days a week, are solely about witchcraft and nothing else. This, in effect, would practice not that many practicing Jewish witches, nearly all of whom have lives aside from their practice, just as even the most dedicated rabbi has a life and family outside of Torah studying and Zavni. Now we continue. The sages taught in Baraita that the verse, you shall not allow a witch to live, does not refer only to a female who practices sorcery. Both a man and women are included. If so, why does the verse state a witch? This is because most women are familiar with witchcraft. Just Sanhedrin 67a, the William David Talma translation. Now, while we know the word witch or sorceress is what's most commonly translated to, it doesn't mean it's only forbidden for women. It's forbidden for men as well. The reason they use the feminine is that witchcraft is exceedingly common among women in Jewish perception. Uh, Pirkei Avot confirms this with the line, the more wives, the more witchcraft. We will talk about historical misogyny regarding witchcraft in a little bit, but let's stay on track with what is witchcraft and how was it viewed? There are two very common opinions and they literally directly oppose each other because of course they do, this is Judaism. Did you think we would agree? The two big proponents of either theory are the Rambam and the Ramban, which just adds fuel to the fire of confusion. The Rambam is Maimonides, the Ramban is Nachmanides. Again, super easy and chill to remember. The Rambam, Maimonides, believed that witchcraft was trickery and was banned because of its way of leading people astray through lies and stage magic. The Ramban, who I will refer to as Nachmanides, for confusion's sake, however, believed that witchcraft was outlawed because it was effective. But what did he think witchcraft was? Well, he believed that Hashem, um, God, Source, Divine, created the natural, right? The natural layer. The humans, earth, earthly rules like gravity. And then above that, the spiritual, spirits, ghosts, demons, um, angels, Shedim, etc. And then there is the divine. So you have those three, the divine, the spiritual, and the natural. And it is through the use of the spiritual that which is attempted to subvert the divine and Hashem and change the natural laws of earth through idolatry. However, this argument is contingent upon the use of the spiritual as opposed to the divine, God, Hashem, and the act of idolatry. Many, if not most, Jewish witches don't invoke the spiritual in their practice as a means of subverting the decree of the divine. The example I like to give, give is, as Moshe lifted his staff and the Red Sea parted, so functions the witch's practice. If Hashem should deploy an angel to do their bidding, as they did with Gabriel to save Abraham from the fire, so be it. Aboteh which is the worship of foreign idols, is commonly referenced here, however, to acknowledge and accept that the realm of the spiritual is there is not the same as worshiping it as Hashem, as God. If someone were to pray for something and an angel or another spirit would appear at Hashem's behest, so be it, right? But that's not to say that Jews didn't literally invoke and called on angels in their own practices, particularly in Kabbalah. But hey, this spiritual realm, this spiritual level is widely accepted acknowledged and called upon time and time again in jewish life to protect from the wrath of lilith for example who would herself appear in that realm of spiritual amulets bearing the names of the angels that brought her back senoia sansanoia and samangalov were common for women and children to wear especially when they were young or pregnant or about to give birth this is an example of the invocation of the spiritual that was not only accepted but promoted within jewish circles There are countless practices, prayers, and rituals involved invoking and calling out to the spiritual realm, but those aren't always labeled as witchcraft, which is odd in my opinion, and and an example of how subjective the label really is, even within Jewish communities or especially within Jewish communities. This passage, written by Rabbi Yuza Shirpin of Chabad.com, talks about people trying to reconcile the views of the Rambam and the Ramban, uh, Maimonides, and Nachmanides the fly is back. Everyone panic. They explain that notwithstanding his own statements to the contrary, Maimonides himself held that magic can work. So why did he take such a strong stance advocating the opposite? To distance people from practicing magic, either because A, magic comes from the the forces of impurity, or B, because magic works, and when one believes in it, giving an existence in his own mind. However, with regard to the evil eye and other things of the nature, the Talmud states that if one does not believe in them and gives them no room to exist, then they actually cease to exist. Therefore, by distancing people from the belief that magic works, that in itself causes it not to work. But regardless of one's of what one's views are about magic, all agree that it is no way that it is, is in no way a contradiction to the unity of God and it itself is a creation of God. Although in the present day, it is sometimes a challenge to recognize the true unity of God, both in the natural and the spiritual. So that's a lot. To recap, even the harshest critics of witchcraft in Judaism still believed in it to an extent. Jews didn't kill witches the way that Christians did. So every person who DMs me saying that I would be killed in ancient Judea owes me a dollar. And the idea of witchcraft being idolatry is predicated on the belief of there being only one kind of witchcraft, which we have already established there isn't. So now let's take a quick break. So I can drink water and you can listen to an ad. Uh, When we come back, we will discuss the forbidden act in witchcraft, which is, boy, just one of my favorite topics. And we're back. So what we've talked about already are these sweeping prohibitions, the grand prohibitions against witchcraft as a whole. But what about some of these specific practices that are outlawed? Because there are some practices that are specifically mentioned. And let's talk about them because boy, are they interesting. I grabbed this list from Wikipedia because it has the uh, phonetic pronunciations, but that does not mean I will say them properly. So if you have a linguistic assistance, feel free to send me a message. Nahash as a noun. Nash translates as snake, and as a verb, it literally translates as hissing. The verb form can be extended to mean whispering. Onan literally translates as clouds, possibly referring to nephomancy. Kashaf is an am- is of ambiguous meaning, being either from a root meaning mutter or from a compound of the words kash herb and hapala using, hence meaning herb user. The Septuagint renders the same phrase as from Pharmakia, pharmakia. let's hope for the best with that one, being a balob, literally meaning master of spirits. The corresponding parts of the Septuagint refer to Ega Strimuthos. This term is also used to describe the witch of Endor, whom Saul enlists to summon the shade of Samuel in Samuel 28. Being a yidoni, literally means gainer of information from ghosts. Being a doresh el-hametim, literally meaning one who questions corpses, kasam kesem, literally means distributes, distributions, and chaber chaber, literally means join, joining. Now these are all vague, but don't worry, Judaism makes things complicated. Yidoni, according to Chabad.com, is the ninth prohibition, as that we are forbidden from performing the practice of Yidoni. It is also a form of idolatry, in which the person takes the bone from the bird called yadua places it in his mouth, burns intense, incense, utters certain words, and performs certain actions until he reaches a state similar to unconsciousness when he goes into a deep sleep and predicts the future. Jewish Encyclopedia talks about this further, and we actually see, in according to their definitions, that these are three classes of necromancers, Ob, Yudoni, and el Hamatim question of the dead. The first two, Ob and Yudoni, are usually mentioned together, Ob is said to denote the soothsaying spirit, or the ghost of the dead, Um, and the Septuagint literally translates the word by uh, ventriloquist, meaning that this from the tone of voice adopted by the necromancer. Jewish tradition says Ob is the python who speaks from his armpits, Yulani is the one who speaks from his mouth. Two objects are mentioned by means of which the necromancer worked, one being a human skull. Now, another thing is, uh, Jews and corpses, we're not a fan. Jews have a very specific feeling about dead people, and that feeling is keep dead people in the ground where they belong. So, of course, the prohibition against dealing with the dead in that manner makes sense. Now, but there's also questions I have like, what does questioning a corpse even entail in regards to witchcraft? Do you actually need the physical dead body? Or is it just to call out to the spirit? Because in that case, then wouldn't going to the grave of the Rebbe for a blessing count as calling upon the spirit of a dead person? Would that be included in it? Now, the fact that we have such stringent anti-necromancy laws totally makes sense in regard to the way that Jews think about, again, death. But let's move on because I think I could talk about Jews and dead people all day long. And maybe I will. Maybe I'll do an episode on it. Let's move on to Deuteronomy. Those nations that you are about to dispossess do indeed resort to soothsayers and augurs. To you, however, the Lord your God has not assigned the like. Deuteronomy eighteen fourteen. Now, this is commonly used to talk about witchcraft, but it's important to note the words here. A soothsayer refers to someone who sees the future, and the augur was a Roman priest, not a Jewish person or a witch. The very clear implication here is not to turn away from Judaism and go to a priest or someone of the other nation. This makes a lot of sense if you know Jewish history and our insistence on staying true to our culture and our religion. These are two very specifics that are mentioned, neither of which need to be applied to a modern witch, particularly not a Jewish witch. Now we see Leviticus 19:26. You shall not eat anything with its blood. You shall not practice divination or soothsaying. Like the term witch, there is no official definition of soothsayer in Judaism. However, according to the Talmud, Sanhedrin 65b, Rabbi Shimon says, this is one who applies seven types of semen to one's eye in order to perform sorcery. And yes, I did say seven types. And by types, they mean species. So not a single person I know would ever be impacted by that. But while Rabbi Shimon has one rather strange extremely jarring, horrifyingly disturbing explanation. It is Maimonides, the Rambam, who I mentioned earlier, who is most commonly referred to when talking about soothsayers. Sepharia uh, references Maimonides' definition of soothsayer. Also, real quick, I love Sepharia so much. If you don't know Sepharia, they're an amazing, amazing uh, resource and Honestly, I love everyone who works there too. They're just wonderful. They're an amazing org. You can find 3,000 years of Jewish text on their website for free with translation, with commentary. It's amazing. Back to what I was saying. Maimani's definition of soothsayer. This term refers to those who foretell events by astrological observations, declaring that a certain day is favorable while another is unfavorable. A certain day is suiting, suited for doing a certain type of work. A certain type of year or month is unfavorable for a particular thing. So by Maimonides' definition, anyone who uses astrology to tell the future is a soothsayer. But this leaves a pretty big loophole. Just don't tell the future with astrology. Use it to dissect your issues, work on bettering yourself, or use it in literally any other way than trying to predict the future. The other loophole is literally any other non-formed band of divination. Don't use astrology, but you can use other forms that are very common within Judaism. This is just one perspective and while extremely well respected maimonides was famously anti-magic in any form going as far as to disparage talmud scholars who used astrology themselves by saying that man was created with eyes in the front of his head not the back when asked how he could hold such an opinion while talmudic scholars accepted astrology i was just informed that you might be able to hear my cat in the last clip so sorry, Eloise decided that she must be the center of attention at all times. Let's continue on about astrology. The Orthodox Union writes that in Judaism, astrology is not regarded as idol worship, even though the generic name for idol worship is Avodat Kochavim Umazalot, worship of the stars and the signs of the zodiac. From the Jewish perspective, the stars are not unrelated to events on Earth. It is not irrelevant whether one was born on Pesach or Yom Kippur or Lag B'Omer, or any particular day. Each day is special and has a unique imprint. Orthodox Union also references how the Talmud states that if one is born under Mars, they are more likely to spill blood, demonstrating just how commonplace it is for Jews to reference the stars. Now, just as a fun fact, you know how we say Mazal Tov? Yup. The signs of the Zodiac are called Mazalot. Jewish tradition sees the constellation on high as directing the destiny of individuals and nations down below. Thus, mazal is influence dripping down from the stars. Over the years, good or bad mazal came to mean luck more than destiny. When the Talmud says we're not subject to mazal, it's not that we are limited by our destiny. Rather, that our own actions determine our fate. So when we say mazal tov, we're literally saying fate, destiny, or luck. Tov, good. Mazal tov. This perspective cares not if Jews look into the future, but reminds us that we are in control of our own destiny and that every one of our actions has weight and meaning. But what about other divination forms? That's a story for another time because honestly we're getting pretty far into this and I think divination deserves its own episode, which let me know if you'd be interested. Let's skip to Leviticus twenty twenty seven. A man also or a woman that divineth by a ghost or a familiar spirit shall surely be put to death. They shall stone them with stones. Their blood shall be upon them. Wow, that seems like pretty damning evidence against divining with spirits, right? Well, that's only a single translation from the Hanach, the Holy Scriptures published by JPS. This is the same line translated by Chabad. And a man or woman who has the sorcery of Ov or Yidoni shall surely be put to death. They shall pelt them with stones. Their blood is upon themselves. We already went over Ov and Yidoni. What we learn from this translation is the conflation and generalization of practices that are specific to become all. All of and you don't need are specific practices, but instead of listing those specific practices, they just say divining with ghosts and familiar spirits, which waters down the meaning and allows it to become a sweeping generalization instead of a specific prohibition against practices. This is not to disparage any specific translation, but to encourage a closer look at them just as english words evolve so do the words of our sacred texts and we have to look at the translations not only from the modern perspective but look at what it meant at the time to further prevent misinformation from being spread by people who don't know enough because i can't tell you how many times i've had people you know literally send me the lines leviticus twenty twenty seven as a way of being like ha you would be dead and i'm like what are you okay all right thank you let's look at the commentary of irashi on the specific passage Here, the penalty of death by stoning is mentioned for them, and the above, it mentions excision. But the explanation is, if there were witnesses to the offense and the necessary warning had been given to them, death by stoning is the punishment. If he acted wittingly but had not been warned, he is punishable with excision, and if he breaks the law regarding of reidoni, inadvertently, he has to bring a sin offering. And the same rule apply in all the cases of all persons who are subject to the death penalty, where excision is mentioned i.e., all such cases, stoning or sin offering is the punishment according to the circumstances. Which is a very long way of saying that again, Jewish courts did the utmost not to actually kill people. But did they do about enough about misogyny? No. No, they did not. Let's talk about misogyny. Judaism is not exempt from it, and it is exceedingly clear in discussions around witchcraft. Meir Barilan, a scholar on the topic, discusses how it was theorized that magic was taught to women by angels that they use their own inherent magic to seduce angels into giving them more. Both theories have been popular, but in the end, it is the same. Women are inherently more prone to magic. This is also similar to Judy in the view that women are inherently more spiritual, though that belief did not quell misogyny's existence. His essay features this brilliant quote, which quite nicely summarizes the point of the intra-community misogyny in regards to witchcraft. All the sources which deplore women for the witchcraft are quote unquote male sources. All the books quoted above in his article were written to the best of our knowledge by men. And R. Yose and R Shimon Bariohai, who deplored women because of witchcraft, were also mad. Indeed, one should know that the same R. Bar Bariohai, who deplored women for their witchcraft, was himself involved in witchcraft. He continues and asserts that if we study the sources, both biblical and Talmudic, we find no indication that it was women specifically who engaged in witchcraft. On the contrary, a statistical analysis of the sources show a greater number of sorcerers than witches. But that doesn't stop the mention in the Talmud of the more wives than the witchcraft, showing that it was commonly accepted as part of Jewish life, even if there were prohibitions against it. It is clear that magic and witchcraft were associated with women, and therefore while men practiced it themselves, women practicing it was seen as inherently negative and must be tamped down upon. Though, again, no evidence of killing witches through Judaism. People also ask me whether there are less texts regarding women's magic than there are men's, and it comes kind of a simple answer. Men were writing books and texts. Especially before the printing press, writing a book wasn't as simple as it was today. Um, so men wrote about themselves and their practices, while women often passed them down to their children. There are books going back and writing down what has been taught now, but we don't nearly have as much literature about the practices of women as we do about the practices of men. So of course, when we analyze the source texts, we will see more men in them because men wrote them about themselves and other men. I also think it's important to note that after my last episode, which covers the witch craze and how Jews were targeted because of their supposed witchcraft, it is important that we remember the different definitions at play here. Jews were thought to be witches by Christians Because Christians thought we worshipped the Christian devil and hated Christ. Jews did not think this about witches. Perceptions of witchcraft varied, but were not comparable to the Christian ones from the naval period. So why didn't you know about Jewish witchcraft? After all of this, how didn't you know about it? For those of you who listened to the last episode, you knew that Judaism was heavily associated with witchcraft across Europe, and this was a huge issue because unlike Jews, Christians did kill people for witchcraft through their court systems. But historic oppression plays two big parts. Other than literally killing us as witches, Jews were forced to hide and modify their practices, and Jewish texts were routinely stolen and burned. In 1233, Pope Gregory Ordered the Dominican Order to root out heresy within their borders. It was during this period that a number of Jewish leaders, hoping to spare their communities from persecution, put a grinding halt to the perpetuation of those forms of Jewish mysticism they felt would attract adverse attention from church authorities. Winkler, uh, Rabbi Gershon Winkler further cites specific rabbis, particularly Rabbi Meir ben Shimon of Narbonne, who went above and beyond, attempting to prove to the churches that Jews were of no harm this unfortunately did nothing in the year 1239 the pope ordered that all jewish sacred texts were burned all of them in france no less than 24 wagon loads of handwritten texts were burned but there's no there's no knowing how many more were stolen and taken in 1553 pope julius iii ordered the burnings of all copies of the talmud In Rosh Hashanah, they burned thousands of texts all across Italy. After that, Venice burned thousands more Jewish texts. In 1559, 10,000 Jewish texts were burned in Cremona, Italy by the Inquisition. The Zohar, one of the only surviving texts, did so because it was being printed at the time by non-Jewish printers. Mind you, before that, um, I believe the printing press became commercially available in uh, in 1450, but I could be wrong. Before that, Those were all handwritten. This was not an easy thing to do, especially if you know Jews, you know that we have a very specific methodology of writing our sacred texts. You can't just like and scratch it out. This is just a small part of the oppression of Jewish people and our mystical practices. Not to mention all the times they burned our stuff, but it's easy to understand this is a pattern. Our texts were often stolen and burned. We had to plead for our lives. In order to do so, we had to lose something. This forced secularization and rationalization of Judaism left many Jews unaware of our own mystical beliefs. Rabbi Gershon Winkler writes that in order to survive, the Jewish people had to compromise. For example, Jews had to tone down the role of their women in religious life and function to avoid suspicion of witchcraft, a suspicion held of all women, the religious affiliation notwithstanding, who exhibited independence, learning, and mystical prowess. Likewise, especially by the 11th century, the Jews had to fold up much of their Kabbalistic tradition and practice, and so it either in the disguise of innocent hymns or in cryptic oral transmissions confined to a select few. It was during this period that the clergymen of the church began to quote-unquote create Western occultism from the texts they were, stealing the Jews. So Jews had to hide the mystical parts of our religion in order to survive. And I don't blame our ancestors. I thank them and honor them and respect the path they chose for survival. but I also mourn so much of what was lost during that period. I touched on this earlier, but Wicca is and was a huge part of why we perceive in magic and witchcraft in the way we do. Wicca and the misinformation perpetuated by its founders and followers has fundamentally shaped the way witchcraft is perceived by the wider Western world. But another reason, in my opinion, is what I call spicy Wicca. I made this term up when I was chatting with a friend and it kind of stuck. Now, as we discussed in my last episode, Wicca is a formal religion. Media, books, everything we see on witchcraft in the Western world is touched by Wicca and filtered through a Wiccan lens. Which means when people buy a book on witchcraft, they end up practicing a very diluted form of Wicca. My personal definition of spicy Wicca is a practice that is mostly, if not entirely, based in Wicca, but without the rules and the structure of Wicca. I'm not trying to shame or bash anyone for their practice at all. I just don't have a better way of describing this highly Wiccanized perception of witchcraft and magic. And this perception has changed the way we, as the public, interact with the word witchcraft. People even use the term witch and Wiccan interchangeably. And because of it, spicy Wicca is easy. You want a love spell? Go to Pinterest. You'll find hundreds of Wiccan-inspired love spells. You want a cleansing ritual? Great. Pick up your first book on witchcraft, and it will, chances are, perpetuate the same perceptions, ideals, and stereotypes as Wicca. I mean, look at how all witches are expected to celebrate the Wheel of the Year in the Wiccan way, which combines a bunch of different practices, some of which are completely confusing, like Mabon, which is actually a Welsh deity and not an autumn harvest festival. Most things are touched by Wicca, even if they just call themselves witchcraft, which means it's easy to be a spicy Wiccan because if you just buy something that's labeled witchcraft without specifically following another set of paths you're probably going to be influenced by it so there we have it historical oppression misogyny wicca just a few of the reasons why most people don't know of judaism history of what can be called witchcraft i want to take a moment to acknowledge that you do not have to call yourself a witch you don't have to call yourself a jew witch you don't have to wake up and walk up to people and make that your whole identity You can totally do that but you don't have to I love the term. I embrace the term, but I don't need to wear it like a badge. I don't walk into every person I meet and go, I'm a Jew witch. There is a reason Jew comes first. I am Jewish first and foremost, and my quote-unquote witchiness comes from within Judaism. Now, before we get to sources, I want to say thank you to Karina13542 for their extremely kind review on Apple Podcasts. I promise I read every single review you leave for podcast specifically. They mean so much to me and do wonders for the podcast as a whole. This is your reminder to press follow or subscribe on whatever platform you're listening to me now and stay up to date with me on Instagram at Jewishes, where I'm the most active. Okay, with that out of the way, let's talk sources. I used a Haaretz article on Thou Shalt Not Suffer a Witch to Live, and it says a murderous mistranslation. The book Magic of the Ordinary by Rabbi Gershon Winkler, a Times of Israel article on Parashat Mishpatim, Uh, Chabad.com on the Negative Commandment 9. There is the article article by May Ilan, on which you can find out faculty.biu.ac.il the ou.org article Judaism 101 the significance of astrology the my jewish learning article on jewish astrology the chabad.org library article on what does mazal tov mean the chabad.org article on jewish chapter 20 Gumro.com slash i slash afe slash kb chabad.org library article do jews believe in magic or Witchcraft? Safari.org, Sanhedrin 65B19, Buckland's Complete Book of Witchcraft, page 221. Um, And then that's it. You can find all of these on the three blog posts I listed at the very beginning of this episode. Thank you all so much for listening. I will see you next episode. Bye bye.